through Matthew's Gospel. And in this sermon series, we're learning about Jesus and discipleship. Between now and Palm Sunday, we're looking at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. These famous words from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 8, just a few lines at a time. We're looking at these words which are known as the Beatitudes. And as we consider these Beatitudes today, especially the second and the third Beatitude, I wonder if some of you are familiar with Hannah's story. 1 Samuel chapter 1 tells us about this woman of faith. She had a much less than ideal marriage, and that's putting it mildly. And in her culture, people generally assumed that a woman's value was measured by how many children she had. And yet living in that society, she had no kids. And so month after month and year after year, as her tears continued, her prayers continued to go unanswered. There was another woman, a rival for her husband's attention, and she would mock Hannah. But Hannah refused to retaliate. She refused to mock in return. Hannah would go to the temple to pray and to worship. And one year in her deep grief, she was there at the temple trying to pray, trying to worship, trying to do all of the things you do at the temple. She was moving her lips but no words would come out of her mouth. Some of us have been there at that place of grief, so far at the end of yourself that no words can even come out of your mouth. It's kind of like her life has become a living nightmare to her. Some of the people who worked at God's temple saw her in this deeply emotional state. They saw all of her emotions. Here's a woman who's emotional during the prayer time. What could that mean? They didn't ask for her story. They didn't bother to listen to her. They didn't begin with any kind of compassion. These people who worked at God's temple simply saw her emotions, and then made their assumptions, and then they accused her of being drunk. To have a disappointing marriage is one kind of pain. That cuts deep. To be mocked by an enemy is another kind of pain. That also cuts deep. To be misunderstood and wrongly accused by people who should represent God's heart. That's a pain that cuts very, very deep, right? 
And I want to invite you for a moment to kind of step into Hannah's story. And I want to invite you to imagine if you are in Hannah's shoes of emptiness and disappointment and unanswered prayers and tears, lowliness. If you're there in Hannah's shoes, what does the world say about you? What does the world see in you? Simply put, if you're in Hannah's shoes, the world says that you're a loser. And I guess sadly we see that reflected in the response of those who worked in the temple in her day. What's wrong with her? With all of those emotions, she must be drunk. Consider with me also, if you're in Hannah's shoes, what would the enemy, what would the voice of shame, what would the accuser say about you? What accusations would the enemy bring? If you're in Hannah's shoes, the enemy says, you're a failure. That's why you must be suffering so. What other explanation could there be? Surely you've contributed to this situation that you're in. You're a failure. And beyond that, the enemy says, you're a burden to everybody around you. Consider also, if you're in Hannah's shoes, what might you evaluate about what's really going on? Listen, in your lowest moments, if you're in Hannah's shoes and the world says you're a loser and the enemy is accusing you of being a failure and the enemy is accusing you of being a burden to everybody else, in your lowest moments, you will be tempted. You'll be tempted to call it quits. In your lowest moments, you'll be tempted to think, why bother with God? What difference does it make? Others who don't even pray are blessed with children. Others who don't even come to worship seem so much happier. So why bother with God? In Hannah's experience of emptiness and tears and unanswered prayers and loneliness, Hannah faced a serious challenge. The world, the flesh, and the devil are saying to you, if you're in Hannah's shoes, you're hopeless. Of course, Hannah lived many, many years ago. She lived about a thousand years before Jesus. And you can read more of her story in 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm not going to tell you how God writes her story into His greater story of redemption. You can go and find that out yourself. But her story rings with relevance across the centuries. Because our circumstances may be very different than Hannah's. But still today, so many of us find the world, the flesh, and the devil saying, You are hopeless. Why bother? But then Jesus opens his mouth to speak. 
He has something to say if we will listen. He leads his people to a mountainside to speak on God's behalf. Just as Moses so many generations before had led God's people to a mountainside to speak on God's behalf. Jesus sees the crowds that have gathered, these crowds of people who are beginning to be interested in him. Matthew chapter 9 verse 36 tells us that on another occasion, Jesus had compassion on the crowds when he saw them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees the crowds drawing near to him. And he sees his disciples who have already left so much behind in order to begin following him. He sees the crowds He sees His disciples. He knows what the world, the flesh, and the devil have been saying to them. And He opens His mouth and He begins by speaking a better word than the world, the flesh, and the devil have ever ever spoken. He begins to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He teaches God's message. And in a world that says to people like Hannah, you are hopeless, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. See, Jesus has good news to announce. And that good news is this. With Him, we are blessed. No matter what the world, the flesh, and the devil might try to tell you. With Him, we're blessed. Even when the world, the flesh, and the devil try to convince us that we're hopeless. We're going to take a few minutes and meditate together to think together about Jesus' message of blessing as opposed to hopelessness. We're going to think of Jesus' message of blessing as part of His good news. And we'll look one at a time. We'll kind of meditate over each of the first three lines of the Beatitudes together today. And part of the argument that I want to try to make to you today, part of what I hope we'll notice as we look at these first three Beatitudes, is that these words are not just sweet ideas given to us so that we can print them on Christian coffee mugs. Rather, these words are essential to the mission of Christ in this world. With Jesus, we're blessed, even when the world says we're hopeless. Let's look at the first surprising blessing in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus announces. Now, I know we did a whole sermon last week just on this line, and I won't say nearly as much as I did last week. 
But it's worth pausing and considering this for a moment again today, this beautiful promise. You see, when somebody who is spiritually empty-handed shows up, how do we usually evaluate that person? When somebody shows up spiritually on empty, not spiritually full, not spiritually with so much together, with having it all together and with having an abundance and an overflow to offer to others. When somebody shows up spiritually empty-handed, we don't usually view them as leading candidates to participate in the kingdom of heaven. But when we find ourselves spiritually empty, spiritually bankrupt, or as spiritual beggars, to use the phrase we used last week. The enemy will try to leverage everything we've heard in this world. And the enemy will come after your heart and try to get inside your head. And the enemy will try to convince you that when you're spiritually empty-handed, you're hopeless. But Jesus has something to say if we'll receive it. Blessed are you. When you're a spiritual beggar. Not spiritually wealthy. I've got it all. Not even just when you're spiritually middle class. I don't have it all, but I can earn a good amount if you just give me time. But when we come to God as spiritual beggars, nothing in my hands I bring. You know what we discover according to the message of Jesus? We're blessed. We meet not the disapproval of God, but the smile and the welcome and the grace of the true and living God when we come to Him with empty hands. And I want to draw your attention to something. We said more about this last week. I'm tempted to kind of re-preach all of it again because it's so beautifully true. And because our hearts need to hear it over and over again. When we come to God as spiritually as spiritual beggars, we're blessed, not sent away. But I want to draw your attention to this thing that I want to point out today. Some of us might be tempted to think that these words are not really all that important. You know, the important stuff is later on in the Sermon on the Mount. The hard commands, the discipleship stuff. These are just the nice words that get it started. But what I want to argue is that these nice words that get the Sermon on the Mount started are not just throwaway words. These are essential to Jesus' mission in this world. They're essential to the redemptive plan of God which has been unfolding for centuries. How do I know that? Listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah, words that belong to the Lord's anointed servant, according to Isaiah. These words were written centuries before Jesus was born, centuries before Jesus led people to the mountainside and began proclaiming, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Centuries before the prophet Isaiah described the servant of the Lord, the Christ, like this 
He gave the Christ these words, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Why? To bring good news to the poor. Do you see what I'm saying? This idea of Jesus announcing that there is a gospel, that there is good news to be proclaimed to us when we come as spiritual beggars with nothing in our hands. These aren't just nice little words that Jesus made up thinking maybe it'll make it easier to hear my message later on if I start with something a little bit nice sounding at the beginning. This is the fulfillment of the story of redemption that God has been plotting for centuries. And so when Jesus shows up and says, blessed are the poor in spirit, these are not throwaway words. These are essential to the mission of Christ in this world. We'll see more about that as we go along. Let's look at the second surprising blessing in the Beatitudes in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If we didn't notice how counterintuitive the first beatitude or blessing is, if we didn't notice how counterintuitive it is that the poor in spirit are blessed, I don't think we can miss how counterintuitive it is to say that those who mourn are blessed. Because when we mourn, we don't feel particularly blessed, do we? When we mourn, we don't feel happy. If you scroll through Instagram and you look at all the hashtag blessed posts, you'll find people with their new cars, you'll find people at their large and extravagant family gatherings, You'll find teenagers with new clothes that they've just purchased. You'll find people out there living it up and having a great time. You won't see a lot of people who are crying so much that their mascara gets all over their face. Right? This is a thing. Half of you in this room know about it. You won't see a lot of pictures of people who are ending a really hard day at the hospital caring for a loved one. You won't see a lot of pictures of people who have made tremendous sacrifices in the course of following the Lord and just saying, hashtag blessed, yo. It's counterintuitive. Now, we need to be clear that Jesus is not anti-joy. Jesus will teach his disciples to rejoice. The New Testament says things like rejoice with those who rejoice. There's an important place for rejoicing and joy and happiness in the Christian faith. Yes. But what's the next line in the New Testament after rejoice with those who rejoice? Mourn with those who mourn. Grieve with those who grieve. Weep with those who weep. There's a place for rejoicing in the Christian life, but there's also an important place for mourning, for weeping, and for grieving. And I wonder if this idea of Jesus 
that we are blessed not only in the happy times when we're singing the really loud worship songs on Easter Sunday, but we're also blessed in the hard times when we feel like we've left so much behind and the sacrifices feel in the moment greater than the rewards in the course of following Jesus and serving others. It seems counterintuitive not only in the world around us, but sometimes it feels counterintuitive maybe in church groups that you've been a part of. I wonder if some of us have bought into this idea that if you're feeling emotions other than happy, then you don't really fit in with other Christians. But then along comes Jesus. And he says, blessed are those who mourn. I wonder if some of us have bought into this idea that being filled with the Spirit means always having a smile on your face. And if it's not real, you should at least pretend it. And if you don't pretend it seven days a week, you should at least pretend it on Sunday. And if you can't pretend it through the whole service, you should at least pretend it when somebody asks you how you're doing after the service. I wonder if some of us have bought into this idea That if you're full of the Spirit, you should always have a smile on your face. But then along comes Jesus. And he says, blessed are those who mourn. I wonder if some of us have bought into the idea that if you're having a bad week, then God must have turned a cold shoulder to you. But then along comes Jesus. And he announces on behalf of the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those who mourn. What would happen if a woman showed up at your next fellowship group meeting and she says she's completely exhausted? What would happen if your fellowship group leader showed up at your next fellowship group meeting and she said she's completely exhausted? What would happen if you talked to an elder in this church and he said, my tears have been my food day and night? Jesus announces the good news of the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Maybe it should affect the way that we embrace and love and welcome and serve those among us who are mourning this week. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they shall be comforted. The point is not that you're blessed if you mourn because instantly it will all dissipate into joy as soon as you think about God. That's not the promise. Most of us know that by our experience all too well. But there is a promise. There is a word of assurance here. There is a real blessing in this. Blessed are those who mourn with Jesus. Why? Because they will be comforted. Jesus came to bring God's blessings as far as the curse is found. It's not just a promise for Christmas. It's a promise for our whole lives. 
He came to bring God's blessings as far as the curse is found. And that means that if we're with Jesus, then the middle of our story, like the middle of His story, and like the middle of the disciples' stories, and like the middle of Hannah's story, the middle of our story might be filled with a lot of tears. A lot of grief, a lot of mourning. There will be times when it feel, when it will feel like the sacrifices we've made are heavier and weightier and more real than the blessings we've experienced. In the middle of our story, that's going to be a normal part of discipleship, but Jesus tells us something, that's just the middle of the story. And the middle of the story may last for Months or years, but there's an end of the story that's coming. Blessed are you who mourn, Jesus says, because there is a comfort coming. And if in our grief and in our mourning, like Hannah, we keep looking in the Lord's direction, even though the world and the flesh and the devil may keep saying you're a failure, and it's all your fault, and it's hopeless, Jesus comes and He announces better news. You're blessed. In the middle of your mourning, you're already blessed. We talked last week about kids on December 1st. They know the joy that's out there because the presents are under the tree. They haven't unwrapped those presents yet. They don't have full possession of it. They're not yet there at that family gathering on Christmas Day. But kids on December 1st already feel the joy of the Christmas season drawing them in. And Jesus says in a similar way, blessed are you who mourn. It validates where we are in our mourning. But it also draws our attention outside of where we are right now and to another time in the future when comfort is coming. Which means we will grieve, but we will not grieve as those who have no hope. We will mourn. Your brothers and sisters in faith will cry many tears. But if we will receive the promise of Jesus Christ, we will not mourn as those who have no hope. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. And I want to draw your attention once again to this fact that this is not just a nice saying of Jesus. These are not just pretty words that we can stamp on Hallmark cards so that Hallmark can make money off of Christians. This promise of Jesus is at the core of His mission in this world. Listen again to the words of Isaiah chapter 61 as they continue to unfold. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Why did God plan centuries in advance to send His Son into the world so that the broken hearted might be bound up and healed. 
The Lord has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to comfort those who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And the oil of gladness instead of mourning. These are not just sweet words that we can print on coffee mugs or Hallmark cards. These are at the core of Christ's mission in this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's why Christ came. There's a third surprising blessing here in these verses. A third surprising blessing in the third beatitude. Verse 5 goes like this. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. We don't often use the word meek. Um, Greek, the Greek word translated meek is also sometimes translated in the New Testament as gentle. Maybe we use that word a little bit more, especially when we're talking to our kids, right? Be gentle. It's kids' virtue, isn't it? Maybe it's more than that. Sometimes it's translated as gentle. Sometimes it's translated as humble. Any of those translations would be great here in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. One of the reasons we don't talk about meekness very often is because, quite frankly, we don't value meekness very highly in our culture or in our world. The 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was not alone in despising Christianity and Christian ethics because of its emphasis on humility and gentleness. Nietzsche believed that the truly great person, the Ubermensch, to use his language. The truly great person would not be a person who prized humility and gentleness. Rather, the truly great person, he believed, would be the person who saw the stark reality of life in this world, that the victory goes to the strong, to the powerful, to the mighty, to those who run over others in their way if need be. The Ubermensch, the great man, according to Nietzsche, is the one who sees what he wants and who takes victory by force, crushing others as needed. When Jesus' words first rang out in the days of the Roman Empire, and when Jesus' words rang out in the German culture of Nietzsche's era. And as Jesus' words ring out in the American culture that we live in today, we have to admit that there is something profoundly countercultural about these words. There's something profoundly at odds with the way most of the world thinks if we say, blessed are those who are gentle. Blessed are those who are not puffed up, but humble. Blessed are those who take things not by force, 
but who are willing to walk in lowly meekness. To suggest that the gentle will inherit the earth is counterintuitive because don't we typically see the opposite? More often than not, it's the Caesars and the Fuhrers and the bullies who get possession of so much of this planet. When have we seen this blessing work out? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In the book of Matthew, this word meek will appear two more times if we keep on reading. And in both of those situations, the word meek describes not the heroic meekness of Jesus' disciples, but the surprising meekness of Jesus himself. Jesus tells us a little bit about who he is. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle. It's the same word as in the Beatitudes. I'm meek, Jesus says, and I am lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus' meekness comes up again as Jesus travels into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Arriving in Jerusalem not on a war horse of triumph, but on a village carrying animal. (laughs) A farmer's tool. He rides in not on a tank, but on a tractor. Not even a full-grown tractor, a John Deere. It's just a donkey's colt. And as he does, Matthew reflects back on something that's written about Jesus in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. But how? Humble or meek. Mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And yet, let me ask you this. How successful was Jesus in his mission? It depends on how you measure things, doesn't it? If it comes to who has power by Roman standards and by Roman measurements, Jesus was a loser. Jesus was a failure. And Jesus was hopeless in his humility, gentleness, and meekness. But if you measure by the standards of the one who says, my kingdom is not of this world, if we start to measure by the standards of the kingdom of heaven, we begin to realize that through his meekness, 
through His gentleness, through His humility, Jesus Christ was winning a triumph and a victory. Through His death as a sacrifice for us in our place on the cross. Jesus was winning a victory. A triumph far greater than any triumph or victory any Roman emperor ever won. A victory and a triumph that would spread not only throughout a few, a few pieces of the known world of the Roman Empire, but to every corner of the planet. And a triumph and a victory that would last not only for a few centuries, as was the case with one of the greatest empires in world history, the Roman Empire, but a triumph that will last without end. And this Jesus Christ, who won that kind of victory for a kingdom that is not of this world, promises us, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Some days it feels more like taking up our cross and denying ourselves and dying. But we do that not with a defeatist attitude that says, if it feels like taking up my cross and denying myself and dying, that must mean I'm a loser. No, we reject the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil that say taking up your cross and dying is losing. As followers of Jesus Christ, we learn to agree with happiness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And once again, I'd like to remind you, this is not just sweet words from Jesus to help us feel better on hard days. This is at the core of what Christ came to accomplish. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful heaven dress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a faint, meek, or humble spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. I love that picture. He's taking us from our place of loneliness, like a little seed that gets thrown in the dirt. A little acorn that's tossed aside as hopeless and worthless, thrown into the dust. To turn, to give them a garment of praise instead of a faint and failing spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Not as a result of their own doing, but a planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. See, this is at the core of why Christ came into this world. Not just to give us sweet little phrases to help us feel better. But these beatitudes are part of Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Which through his death and resurrection have been inaugurated. 
The kingdom of heaven whose ultimate victory is assured on the basis of nothing less than the secured victory of Jesus Christ. And why did He give His life? Why did He come into this world? To proclaim good news to the poor. To give gladness to those who are currently mourning under the weight of the curse of sin. And to give restoration to those who have lived in meekness and perhaps taken up their cross and followed Him for a long, long time. In fact, not just to give restoration, but to fill their mouths with praise to the glory of the Lord. These words are essential to the mission of Christ in this world. I wonder if we're ready to receive His words. So here's the good news. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they may tell us that we're hopeless. But with Jesus, we're blessed. Two reflections very briefly on what this means for us. One is that this good news that we're blessed with Jesus regardless of what the world, the flesh, and the devil may say. This good news that blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. This good news nourishes our discipleship. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the most famous sermon of all time. And it's known as a message of radical discipleship. Think about a few of the lines for just a moment. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not lightweight stuff. You have heard that it was said you shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everybody who's even angry. That's not watered down discipleship. Love your enemies. Your enemies. Like the enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Judge not, lest you be judged. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And be warned, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, the Sermon on the Mount is not a watered down message of discipleship. It's for real. It's challenging stuff. But you know what we need if we're not going to settle for watered down discipleship? If we're not going to settle for watered down discipleship, I'm telling you, we cannot afford to settle for watered down grace. And so Jesus, in His wisdom, begins this message about radical discipleship with a message about surprising blessing. He begins this message about radical discipleship with a message about amazing grace. Why? Because if we're going to follow Him, and if we're not going to settle for watered-down discipleship, then we cannot afford to settle for watered-down grace. And so before putting in front of us foolproof discipleship, Jesus lovingly and in His mercy 
and in his wisdom sets in front of us foolproof grace. Here it is. Blessed are those who are empty-handed spiritually. Blessed are those who are mourning right now. You're already living in the blessing of God. Blessed are those who are meek. Sometimes when we talk about Paul's letters later in the New Testament, we make a lot about the relationship between indicatives and imperatives. Have you heard of this before? These are grammatical ideas that basically suggest that Paul's typical order of teaching is first to tell us what's already true and then to tell us what we're called to do. First, the indicatives that indicate what's already true, then the imperatives, what we're called to do. And what I want to show you here at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus believed in indicatives before imperatives, if you will. Jesus, too, believed that this kind of grace is not just here to help us feel better. It's what nourishes the whole path of discipleship. It's what fuels us all the way down the journey. And so for your own path of discipleship, as you consider what it means for you to take up your cross, to, de- to deny yourself, for you to follow Jesus, let me say to you, don't try that road without foolproof grace. Don't try traveling that path without the full surprising blessings of Jesus and without a full dose of God's amazing grace nourishing you and fueling you for the whole journey. And let me add, as we seek to love others in this church family, as we seek to care for those who mourn, as we seek to care for brothers and sisters who might feel like the costs of following Jesus are weightier than the blessings of following Jesus today, And as we call others to follow Jesus, telling them in all honesty, the call is this, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow him. As we help one another follow Jesus and as we call others to follow Jesus, let's not forget where Jesus himself began with surprising blessings with amazing grace, with the Lord's loving favor and His smile that is already over those who are ready to listen, even before we've taken a step in His direction. This good news nourishes our discipleship and this good news nourishes our worship. I don't think I need to say much about this, do I? I think you probably feel it a little bit in your heart. If by grace through faith you have come to know Jesus as Lord, who not only calls us on a road of discipleship, but who meets us first right where we are in the dust and the ashes of our lives. If you've met Jesus who promises to take us further and deeper in the path of what it means into the heights of following Him, but who meets us right where we are in the lowliness and the grief and the tears and the mourning of where we might be right now today. 
If you've met this Jesus whose grace not only is trying to help you grow, but whose grace is ready to welcome you and meet you right where you are today, then I don't think I need to say a whole lot to convince you of this. That this message of Jesus Christ, his message of radical grace, it nourishes, it feeds, it fuels it lights up a fire of praise inside our souls, doesn't it? Jesus announces for us good news here in this passage. Even though the world, the flesh, and the devil may seek to convince us in our lowest moments that we're hopeless, better news the gospel brings. Jesus opens his mouth and he says, With me, you're blessed. And as we said last week, these are not just words that Jesus spoke. These are blessings that Jesus gave his very life, shed his very blood, and died to secure so that forevermore we might live under the smile of God's blessing together with him. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.